Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good evening and uh, welcome along to Gateway. As Chris said, thrilled that you're here. If you've been coming regularly, you'll know we've been doing a series that we've called Small Groups That Change the World. And in that series, I've been looking at what we call creative minorities. Creative minorities are small groups of thoughtful, committed people who function within a dominant culture, that culture often being very different from their own and sometimes completely opposed to their own, but nevertheless they interact with it and end up becoming a redemptive force and power within it. Obviously we're talking about Christian um, creative minorities. And as we've considered the series, we've uh, mentioned a number of them, but we've focused on Daniel and his friends in Babylon. We've talked about the Clapham sect in England and the Moravians in Germany. And what I've been doing over the last little while is talking about the common denominators of these groups, these redemptive groups, these creative minorities. Um, and we've talked about how they are committed to a particular narrative, how they are covenantal communities, how they live under a distinct sense of authority and how they are ethical communities. And I wanna try and conclude the series this evening by combining two more common denominators. Um, they exhibit specific spiritual practices and secondly, they are motivated by a powerful mission. I wasn't quite sure how to combine those two, um, but a phrase came to mind while I was preparing the message and I'm gonna use it both to title the message and to theme the direction in which I go. And the phrase was, they go deep in order to go wide. They go deep, that's their spiritual practices. In order to go wide, that's their spiritual mission. I mentioned this morning that I'm kind of slightly apologetic about this message because uh, as I finished it and kind of looked back over it, it's um, heavy on cultural critique and probably reasonably light on scriptural biblical exposition. And I don't like that balance, but um, it's the way it is for this evening. If you come to Gateway with any regularity, I hope you'll know that that's not our normal practice. But I want to begin by um, telling you a parable, or, or it came from a documentary, actually. Um, it was one of the many nature doc documentaries that David Attenborough made, and I want to use it kind of in a parabolic way, if I can. Um, the do the uh, documentary centered around the use of time-lapse photography um, in uh, a remote jungle location, and it was really about the diversity of plants in that particular location. And using time-lapse photography, it showed the incredible response of jungle plants to space and light that were created by the fall of one of the great jungle giant trees. Immediately it fell, a race began among the other plants to capture the space and the light that now poured in. So at first, the space was very quickly filled with a variety of broadleaf specimens. Their large leaves were able to capture a significant amount of sunshine and, and it ensured rapid and rather spectacular growth. Soon though, trees began to break through the broadleafed carpet of plants, shooting their wispy trunks up into the unoccupied space, and before long, their branches filled with leaves. The growth of the trees seemed impressive compared to the broadleaf plants, but when compared to the other trees that surrounded the space, um, their height wasn't particularly impressive, of course. 
In reality, their position was somewhat precarious because something soon began to happen. Around the base of their thin, vulnerable trunks, small vines began to twist and wind their way round. At first, there were only a few, but uh, soon they became legion, and piggybacking their way up the wispy, pre-existing structures, they soon dominated both the space and the light. Uh, the wispy trees almost became invisible, buckling under the suffocating blanket of vines. So at this point in the journey, it seemed that the vines had won the race. Their growth, though, halts, because there are now no more structures to climb higher on. And then a change became apparent. A lone trunk appeared seemingly from nowhere, piercing through the blanket of vines. Its trunk was much thicker, its form much more solid. And rising above the vines, it kept moving, first doubling the height of the other trees and plants competing for the space. Soon it was at least 10 times their height, and before long, it reached the height of the surrounding giants and was truly a magnificent specimen. So the space and the light had been captured by this giant, and barring accidents, uh, it might well last for centuries. The broad-leafed plants that initially filled the space did so by gaining quick, spectacular, visible results, yet their leaves and root structures were, in fact, very fragile. What they did was they sacrificed sustainability and longevity for short-term gain. The wispy trees that broke through the spaces next also gained reasonably quick initial success, but their structures too proved not to be resilient. The vines, of course, grew at the expense of the others. They existed parasitically on the work of, of the other plants, but when they eventually overwhelmed them, they, of course, cut off their own future as well. I, I suspect it doesn't take too much prophetic insight to see where that example, that parable might be taking us. You know, when it comes to being a creative minority, doing ministry and mission in the open cultural spaces created by our crumbling institutions and the confusion of our time, we face the same kind of challenges that the jungle plants did. It's, it's actually possible to create something that can be spectacular and visible, but ultimately is incredibly fragile. In these seasons, ministries can arise growing quickly, but often at the expense of long-term sustainability. Like vines, some ministries exist parasitically off pre-existing structures, but eventually as those structures collapse, of course, the vines do too, or the ministries do as well. What I'm suggesting to you is that if we want to be creative minorities, then we have to, in fact, be like the giant tree. Like the huge tree, Creative minorities win the race by doing something very, very counterintuitive. While other plants are competing for space and air and light, the large tree actually goes underground. While others are struggling, pushing to the surface, seeking to go up and out, um, the, the, the big trees actually go deep. I, I think it's a common mistake in business, in ministry, and in many other fields as well to pursue initial visibility at the expense of long-term stability. The future jungle giant remains hidden, pushing underground, building powerful roots. The deep underground foundations grown by the tree ensure that it's connected to deep and unseen sources of water, of nutrients, of life. And once they are secured, then the growth of the tree is inevitable.
These trees are apparently willing to lose the initial battle in order ultimately to win the war. They go deep in order to go high and wide. Now, like all analogies, they have their limits. And there's one caveat that I'd like to put on this parable as it relates to you and I about going deep. I think we must not go deep as a means to an end. We don't simply go deep in order that we might ultimately get visibility and breadth in terms of um, notoriety. We go deep because it is our calling, it is our responsibility, and it is our joy. If God deems to give breadth and height, then so be it. But for us, that's a serendipity. It's not a necessity. Our call is to, first of all, go deep. You know, the breadth and the height is actually God's providential call. He can decide where he's going to give that kind of visibility. It, it's his calling. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul was speaking about his apostolic mandate. And, and he says this, as for us, however, our boasting will not be go, go beyond certain limits. It will stay within the limits of the work which God has set for us. He's talking about limits that God has set. His ministry has boundaries that God has set. And then he goes on and said, this includes our work among you. And since we are within those limits, we are not going beyond them when we came to you, bringing the good news about Christ. So we don't need to boast about the works that others have done beyond the limits God has set for us. When we go deep, God has uh, providentially determined how high and, and broad we might go. He set limits, as it were. And we can actually push out right to the pot full potential that he's intended for us. But we don't go deep in order to get that. We go deep because it's our calling, our responsibility, and our joy. I don't think I'll shock anybody here tonight by suggesting that our present cultural climate is characterized by, in fact, I'd go further than that and say, is cursed by shallowness and superficiality. It seems so often and in so many fields that people's goals are largely about fame, notoriety, celebrity, visibility. You know, the most common response to children now when they're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Isn't a spaceman, an astronaut, a fireman, or a lawyer, or whatever. It's actually famous. I want to be famous. They don't particularly mind in what field or how. They just want notoriety. We face a cultural landscape where rich inner private lives are devastated and depleted. I think our cultural climate actively works against personal depth. It majors in noise, it majors in hurry, it majors in crowds, and it strangles any depth that we might seek in our lives with muchness and manyness. Psychiatrist Carl Jung once quipped, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. And superficiality and shallowness are its unholy offsprings. There's a couple of philosophers, one by the name of Herbert Dreyfus and another by the name of Paul Dorrance Kelly, and they um, studied our culture and they rightly pointed out that since our culture can provide no sense of ultimate meaning, remember we talked right at the beginning about creative minorities have a particular narrative that they are absolutely committed to and live by. Our culture doesn't have an ultimate transcendent narrative. And the best that it can say to us is grab the moment, try and be, try and be happy. 
So the best that it can offer us, Dreyfus and Kelly say, is what they call whoosh moments. The whoosh moment is, you know, that moment when our favorite team wins. It's the apex of the concert. It's the perfect meal. It's the brilliant holiday. Just moments to be enjoyed, consumed like chocolate, a fleeting moment of bliss. By the way, I'm not suggesting any of those things are wrong, but if that's the sum total of your story, then something is tragic. The hunger for whoosh moments in the absence of a transcendent story has given birth to a multitude of industries that are intent on delivering them. And life for many people just becomes a cavalcade of never-ending wish moments, each one ultimately, hopefully, better than the last. Bungee jumps and zip lines, South Sea Resort, reality shows on TV, each of which must be more shocking and more engaging than the previous one. So turn up the sex, the color, the noise, the intrigue, the novelty, the raw emotions. Now, we might expect that from the field of entertainment, but this need for wish moments is spilling over into all parts of our culture. Politics has long forsaken substance and has descended into wish moments. Who cares about ideas, policies, and substance? It's all about style and impression, how they looked, how they used their gaze, how they teared up at the right time, how they delivered their one-liners and displayed their wit. I was saying this morning, I read a BBC report yesterday about the democratic um, election in the States, and they had all of the candidates up there, and the headline was, who delivered the best one-liners? Whoosh. It's not about policy. As a result, of course, spin doctors and press agents are far more valued in the potential candidates' entourage than research assistants are. And our culture has descended into spin. Postmodern philosopher Stanley Fish said, whoever spins wins best. Make sure it's you. In such a culture, truth, reality, morality are the casualties of image. David Brooks, who's a New York Times correspondent, was looking at Dreyfus and Kelly's research about whoosh moments, and he made this, he made this haunting observation. Though they try, he says, Dreyfus and Kelly don't give us a satisfying basis on which to distinguish the whooshing that some people felt at a civil rights rally and the whooshing that some others felt at a Nazi party rally. And frankly, we don't care, just as long as we get that adrenaline. Now, whoosh moments might sound fantastic, might sound fantastic to those who at least have financial clout to purchase the courtside tickets, to sit in the corporate box at the game and have the best tickets to the U2 concert, and, and perhaps who can afford to snorkel offshore, off, off the shore of the luxury resort. But I mean, seriously, folks, what solace does such a culture of whoosh promises give to the mentally ill that are stuck in the cycle of the street? What promise does it give to the refugees who are fleeing war or the struggling family that is trying to pay the mortgage, the school fees, and put food on the table for their kids. Our, our whoosh culture exists on the basis of a lie, which basically says to all of us, you can have and do whatever you like, just follow your dreams. Now, for some, that might be wonderfully true, and I'm thankful for that, but the harsh reality is for everyone whose dreams materialize in the promises of the whoosh culture, I could introduce you to a thousand hearts and dreams that lie broken. Hollywood is filled with waiters and waitresses whose screens tests did not result in movie deals. 
And I'm not trying to depress you. I said this morning, if you wanted an aspiring TED Talk, you've come to the wrong place. This kind of cultural story leads to death and disillusionment. What I want to say to you is we are being invited into a much bigger, much better, much more hopeful story than this candy floss nonsense that is our cultural scripts. The dark side of this whoosh culture is a current of anger and resentment for the 95% of the people whose dreams don't materialize in the way that the culture promised they would. And the hunt for whoosh moments ultimately leaves us mired in illusions. Its promises and its lifestyle are exposed for all their selfishness and all its shallowness. You know, one of the things that disturbs me in terms of pastoral ministry as it's panned out over a 40-year period is the number of people who grow up and refuse, grow up physically, biologically, but refuse to grow up emotionally constantly looking for whoosh moments in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. They rush headlong from one whoosh moment to another. They become suspended in their adolescent fantasies and they are eternal Peter Pans, oversexed, narcissistic, and usually unhappy. Because when you probe them, happiness always seems to be happening to somebody else. It's what they're doing that makes them happy. It's always somewhere else and it's like pursuing the horizon. Refusing the responsibilities and commitments of adulthood, they remain eternal adolescence, and our culture is cursed by it. This culture has embraced the illusory romance of I will be happy when, and they have to fill in the blank with a wish moment. I said to you right at the story of the start of this series, ideas have consequences, and if you remember the statement, I hope you remember it in context, it's the story, stupid. It's the story, and stories have consequences. And since our culture has nothing in the way of a transcendent story, all it can offer us is the moments of whoosh. A few years ago, Newsweek magazine had a very, very perceptive article on the superficiality of our culture. And it delved into the rise of plastic surgery in our culture. Now, that might seem like an odd topic for casting life, uh, or light, rather, on our cultural climate, but it turns out that its popularity is unusually illuminating. Plastic surgery was not widely undertaken before World War I. It became, at that time, an important mean of, means of repairing the disfigured faces and bodies of soldiers returning from the front. But today, what started as the humane treatment of wartime injuries is now a multi-billion dollar industry practiced chiefly on those in good health and without medical necessity. And in the Western world, it's one of the fastest growing medical specialities. Newsweek asked, what is behind the cultural shift from initial disapproval of, disapproval of cosmetic surgery performed in purely aesthetic ways to the widespread acceptance of cosmetic surgery? Their answer to that question was, over the last century and a half, life has moved from rural to urban, from small, stable, face-to-face -face relationships to fast, superficial, largely anonymous acquaintances. The result is an accompanying shift from an emphasis on our internal character to one's external appearance. 
the traditional idea of a strong character has given way to the striking personality and the successful image. And in a world, it says, in which first impressions may be all there is, plastic surgery is as natural a response as press agents and spin doctors. I found that incredibly insightful. What was once considered a weakness of vanity is today considered by many a practical necessity and a response to our culture's obsession with superficiality, with shallowness, with external physical appearances. And Newsweek concluded the article with an amusing but profoundly probing question. Are we dragging character down as we lift everything else up? Thoughtful. Friends, if we're gonna be a creative minority, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, seeking to be a redemptive influence, and I really trust that you, you do want to do that, because, you know, um, seriously, without wanting to do that and be that, I would, I would question your grasp of your calling. But if we are going to be that kind of people, then we have to be counterintuitive to our culture. Remember I said last week, you can't release people from the idols of a culture when you are entangled with those same idols. And if whoosh moments and superficiality and shallowness characterize us, what do we have to offer anybody? The counterintuitive pursuit of Jesus' disciples must be for depth, both personally and for us corporately. Richard Foster in his classic book, The Celebration of Discipline, says the desperate need today is not for greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. You know, Jesus built his ministry on going deep with a few rather than being shallow with the crowd. He sought depth rather than notoriety. By the way, that's not an argument for small churches as opposed to large ones. It really doesn't mean that large churches of necessity necessity have to be shallow. Depth can be sought with any number of willing people. An incredible historical example of somebody who sought depth and who God gave breadth and height to was Saint Benedict. He was a sixth century monk. I'm sure that many of you will have heard of the Benedictine order of monks and nuns. They still exist today. There's still over 25,000 of them. And uh, you add to that 5,000 Cistercian monks who follow the order of, of St. Benedict as well. This is a guy who through the centuries has had massive, massive influence. He didn't initially seek it, he just sought to be deep. He was a classic example of creative minority that pursued depth and to whom God granted height and breadth. He was a young man shocked by the lax living of his companions and the dissolute culture that he uh, found himself in and he withdrew. Uh, initially by himself, but ultimately people were drawn to him and he built communities, he built monasteries. He set an incredibly high standard for those that were drawn to him. He wasn't interested in a large number of lukewarm disciples, in fact, he turned them away. He sought a few white-hot believers. And in the swirl of the cultural confusion of that time, his monasteries became a magnetic oasis for people. They became stable centers of learning with high moral standards and they were passionately missional. The monks and the nuns lived out the order that he developed for them, submitting themselves to one another, to God. They dwelt in the scriptures, they were given to prayer and they gave themselves to good works. Seeking depth, God added to this man breadth and height and the Benedictine community spread out across Europe and across the world. Your calling, 
My calling, our calling, is to be a people of depth. And so you might say, okay, Dom, well, how do we do that? What does, what does deep look like? Well, honestly, that's another series, probably another several series, but could I suggest to you, if you're serious and you haven't read the book, that you find a copy of Richard Foster's classic book called The Celebration of Discipline, because it will introduce you to some disciplines that are specifically designed to deepen your life. I suggest that the last word of the title, Celebration of Discipline, probably will frighten a number of you off. Depth starts, like all things, in the small arenas of our lives. It's the daily disciplines, it's the daily liturgies that you live out that begin to dig you down beneath the surface. It's the small daily habits and liturgies that recruit your affections. You know that great philosopher, Winnie the Pooh, sometime, he once said, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. It's a profound statement. I would suggest that you don't run out and think, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create depth, so I'm going to start a 40-day fast. Um, might not be a good place to start. Okay? It's a bit like saying I'm going to run a marathon, and so you sign up and line up on the marathon start line the next day. It's really good to run 100 yards before you try a marathon, and then 200 yards. Why don't, why don't you just start by reading the Bible five minutes a day, every day, for a week, every day, making sure that you, didn't, that you do it. And then maybe the next week, taking an extra five minutes just to contemplate and pray over what you just read. Make it your ethos. Do it so often that you don't have to decide, will I do it this morning or not? Or will I do it this evening or not? It's just what you do. You've heard me talk about ethos before. Ethos are patterns of behavior that you do without even having to think. Like when you get in the car, at least I hope it's your ethos, without even thinking, you pull down and click the seatbelt. There was a time when that was not my ethos because seatbelts weren't required on the horses that we rode. I mean in the car, sorry, in, in our cars, okay? I had to teach myself that ethos as a lot of you older people did. But now it's just without thinking. Friends, what do you do in terms of spiritual disciplines that you do without thinking? And if you say none, then I'm telling you, you don't have an ethos. An ethos is something that you do without even having to think about it. I often say to people, when you wake up on a Sunday morning and think, well, I go to church today, oh man, it's such a nice day, maybe I won't, you don't have an ethos. An ethos is something that you do without even thinking. It's spiritual disciplines. And Aristotle once said, you are or you become what you repeatedly do. I suspect one of the problems that we face is that we don't repeatedly do spiritual liturgies. You know, we're seasonal saints. We get really excited about something and then we do it for three weeks and then we stop. An ethos pushes through that three weeks. It pushes through the... the the barrier of the broadleaf plants, it pushes through the vines, it pushes up and out of the depth of doing this again and again and again. It, it doesn't stop, it keeps going. If you think, well, you know, there's not too many things that I do with, you know, regard ethos, I, I, I'm just not that kind of person. Yes, you are. You monitor how you use your phone, and I guarantee that you have an ethos. I guarantee some of you have an ethos with regard to your Facebook page that you would do well to transfer to spiritual liturgy. Now you're feeling bad. Some of you are feeling guilty and thinking, Don, you're creating guilt. Tut, tut. 
if the cat fits, eh? There are secular liturgies that are fashioning you without you even being aware of it. Nobody drifts into spiritual depth. You don't accidentally stumble into being a deep person. That is a commitment that you make. In Daniel, Daniel chapter six, remember the king was tricked into saying, nobody's allowed to pray to any God except to me. Well, it says in verse 10, when Daniel learned that the order had been signed, he went home. In an upstairs room of his house, there were windows that faced toward Jerusalem, and there, just as he had always done, he knelt down at the open window and prayed to God three times a day. This guy had an ethos. This guy had uh, spiritual liturgies that he involved himself in that really began to shape his life. And friends, it's the daily disciplines that curate your heart. In spiritual formation, repetition isn't insincere. It's required. You know, our culture tells us, don't keep doing it if it doesn't work. You know, that's just dumb. You need, you know, you need some inspiration. You need whoosh. Well, look, in spiritual disciplines, you don't. You just, honestly, you need the repetition of it. And you say, well, that sounds boring, Don. Well, look, any person that makes their way in almost any field you care to name, do it because they do it with regularity. There's repetition. Whether it's honing your golf swing, practicing the piano scales, doing those repetitions at gym, you know the repetitions done repetitiously change something. Ultimately, they change something. Roger Federer, arguably the greatest tennis player that the world has ever seen, said this, training is both muscular and neurological. Hitting thousands of tennis strokes a day, day after day, develops the ability to do by feel what cannot be done by regular conscious thought. This is exactly what I'm talking about, only I'm talking about it doing its, its spiritual liturgies. When Roger Federer is playing and someone hits the ball to him, he doesn't have to think, will I go down the line with my forehand or will I go cross-court? He doesn't even think. He just does it because he's so involved in that he knows what he's doing. It's done as much by feel as it is by conscious choice. And spiritual disciplines are no different. You say, well, Don, you know, I read the Bible and I can't even remember what it said later that day. It doesn't matter. Unless you're boring and have the same thing for breakfast every day, you probably can't remember what you had for breakfast last Wednesday. So yes, I do, I always have wheat bix that's my spiritual liturgy. <laughs> it feeds you, it feeds you. Now I know that sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes you get preachers like me get up and they talk about their Bible reading and it's almost like God speaks to them every day. And then you go to your Bible reading and you think, it doesn't work for me like that. Friends, it doesn't work for me like that either. Sometimes I'm reading the scriptures and as I said this morning, sometimes it feels like eating dry wheat picks and trying to whistle after it. It's not always easy. You know, anybody who's read the book of Leviticus knows that it's not always easy. I said, again, I said this morning, read the, if you struggle with the book of Leviticus, read it in the, in the message translation. At least you'll be confused in modern day language. Some of those passages are hard. Just work your way through them. Keep going. Because it builds, and it builds, and it creates something. The creation and, and corporate repetition of daily habits allow creative minorities to begin to reverb 
to a sacred rhythm that is counterformational. It drowns out the life scripts that you're offered by our candy floss culture that says, you need another fix, you need another whoosh. And off we run. Friends, actually, you probably don't need another whoosh. Some of us need to spend time alone, and, and, and most of us can't do it. Most, most of us are frightened of solitude. We're frightened of silence. We can't do anything without our phones, you know, plugged into our ears. Everything has sound around about us. I think it was Pascal who once said most of the world's problems would be solved if people just got alone for half an hour a day by themselves. We, we don't know how to do spiritual disciplines. And one of them is solitude, just sitting, being alone, allowing God to just remind us of things, as it were. All of the creative minorities that I looked at were committed to regular, repetitive, corporate and individual disciplines. It's all very well talking about creative minorities that changed the world, but they changed the world because they went deep into the spiritual disciplines. They, they sought to know God. They sought to be deep people. And out of that, they were able to sustain both breadth and height. Now, I, you know, I, I realize we're Pentecostal people, and sometimes Pentecostal people here talk like this, and they go, well, you know what we need is a touch of God. We need an encounter with God, Don. That's what we need. And, and you won't get any argument from me. You know, I, I mean, encounters from God are incredibly important, and I can match your story for story. But none of the creative minorities that I studied were sustained by their encounter experiences. They had them, but they weren't sustained by them. All of the groups that I studied had crisis encounters in which they surrendered to God at deeper levels and then they sought his face and his grace through the practices of habitual, corporate, and individual disciplines. They went deep in order to go wide. And that's our challenge. <coughs> it's easy to inspire people, you know, when you're talking about uh, Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, and I got inspired. I was quite deeply moved. But the reason they endured the 46 years of battling the slave trade is their personal disciplines, encouraging one another in personal disciplines. And the outer success came from the inner depth that they sought. And it will be the same for you and me. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.